Live from Care Paravel, it's Drill Trains of Thought. there this is uh nick hayden and this is timothy deal uh opening our 28th episode we're really getting up there yeah number uh, 30 coming up before too long i know here. although i have to ask nick if we're at caraparaville what in the world are we doing doing a podcast i want to be like taking fencing lessons with, with king edmund i was going I, i'm with you but then this line came up it said you need to do your podcast and i said <sighs> okay that probably comes first yeah he's probably right but you can go fence i see there's a ship down there? No, that's later, though. Uh, different. I know. Different time period. I, I really... I'm should... sure they have a ship, though. You know what? I'm going to step out. I'm going to come back. It'll be time to ride the Dawn Treader. Because I hear time works differently here. Yes, which is awesome. Yes, very awesome. The Doctor would have a field day. The Doctor would have a field day. Well, I don't know how well he would get along with Adland, but still. No, that's <laughs> true. It, well, it would certainly change his uh, perspective on a lot of Yeah, things. and he might, he might be open. This one, this most recent incarnation might be open enough to him. Possibly. Yeah, that's possible. So, um, I guess we'll stop rambling about being here in Narnia, which is lots of fun. It really is. But um, we've got to get down to this. Tell, telling you what, uh, a centaur ride is pretty awesome. I, I, I had some of the owls take me around, which was Ooh, pretty blast. Very yeah. cool. Very so, cool. Uh, as long as the beavers don't talk your ears off, it's it's good times here. In, yeah. At Care We're not laying them near the microphone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, anyways, uh, we'll start off with uh, Story School. Our story school today, you may or may not have guessed, is about God and fiction, which we had warned you about. Yes. And I had sent out a Twitter question on randomly, and no one answered. Oh, that's too bad. Of course, the thing is, it probably got buried under everything else. Yeah, Twitter, it's... Weird. I need to say it like ten times a day, and someone might see it. Twitter, 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 Twitter. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's what the owls use. (laughs) (laughs) But, this is a wide-open subject. Yes. And Tim and I think are coming from slightly different angles... Well, possibly. Possibly. Namely, well, I guess there's a, a number of ways you can take this, but I guess the starting off place, and we may get derailed from here, because that happens from yeah, time it, to time. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like we should warn people about that with the title of the podcast or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what kind of role does God play in your story? Sometimes it, he plays a direct role. In the case of Narnia, he's personified in an actual character. Yeah. And probably, I think most people would agree, Lewis did that better than probably anyone else. Yeah, I'm very, in my own fiction, I've realized, I don't think it came off, I don't think I planned this, but I tend to like a barrier between, like, God's a a figure in my stories, Mm -hmm. but there tends to be a layer of removal. I don't like to talk about God directly. Mm -hmm. It seems to be partly dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And partly... It's not necessarily how I've interacted with God in a very direct, like, he talked directly to me. So a lot of my characters are, are kind of like the buffers between God and the mm-hmm. rest of the people. It can be a very tricky thing when you actually try to have God appear in your story. Like, I remember when we did The Revolution, an ongoing serial project, we had this character, Melchizedek, who is essentially Jesus. But the problem is... He kind of got to be a one-sided Jesus. He was all love and caring, and there wasn't any of the righteous wrath of God in any of that sense. It was, in a sense, a very 20th century or 21st century now Jesus. You yeah, know, all it, love and no, no. It was kind of a like a Bruce Almighty sort of 
Kind of. Morgan Freeman. More, yeah, yeah. Which is a, actually a relatively good secular version of God. Yeah, no, yeah. Bruce Almighty is was a surprisingly good um, portrayal of God. And... I guess we should mention, if you have not been listening to our podcast, Tim and I both come from believing Christianity. Yes. So when we talk God, that's what we mean. Yeah, the real God, not like Buddha or some, or someone else. It's the God of Christianity. That's where we're coming from. Probably not really actually a big surprise to the listeners of this podcast. No, but, but I mean, if they're new here. So. Yeah, which is, there's always that possibility. Hopefully. <laughs> but I don't know that there's actually that many, that good thing offhand shows where God, at least Christian God, comes in directly. Unless you're doing biblical story. A biblical adaptation. adaptation yeah. yeah. But I suppose you got God-like characters quite a lot in, well, not quite a lot, but more often in fantasies and stuff like that. Well, even beyond that. Star Trek V. Yeah, Star well, <laughs> that's that's a whole other matter. What does God need with a spaceship? Which, actually, the Christian response to that might be, well, he doesn't need it, but if he chooses to use it, that's entirely a possibility. But let's not go into Star Trek V stuff. Um, he made me lose my train of thought. <laughs> That Podcast happens. title. <laughs> Actually, and not even in just fantasy, because I've heard in, in film theory, they talk about the Christ figure a lot. Oh, true. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be talking about a direct allegory to Christ. Sometimes it's just, you know, the man who is who takes on suffering to help someone else. That's a Christ which, figure. Which they try to pull off in uh, Superman Returns. Yes. Yeah. Um, Doctor Who, especially with David Tennant, had done several times. Yeah. Like in human nature, mm-hmm. especially. And we talked a little bit about that in our, our heroes, heroes episode, yeah. where sometimes when the character is just so good, he kind of takes on a whole godlike demeanor, which is always interesting when it comes up in a secular thing, because I always feel it kind of touches on a longing for God that they don't always even realize that they have. Well, and sometimes you got these godlike figures where they're not pure gods, but they're like Greek gods, kind of. Yeah. Like, you know, Babylon 5 tends to have like. The first ones that are, yeah. I mean, they're not immoral, but they're kind of... They're uber-spiritual, they're on a different plane of existence, they're higher evolved, whatever you want to call yeah. it. And a lot, of, a lot of science fiction does that. Mm. It seems that science fiction tends to, since they don't, they don't tend to have God, they tend to have, well, sometimes God-like creatures. Yeah, and in a lot of those cases, the God-like creatures, sometimes they mess things up because they're... Because from, from the secular point of view, yeah. they've got more power than they really know what to do with. I mean, if you look at, uh, if you were to consider Jacob, oh. yeah, I was going to say <laughs> Lost, Jacob and, or the Man in Black and Lost, you kind of get the idea that these guys have way more power than they really know how, they really could well, handle. And those are so fascinating just because they're basically humans that were granted extra power, which is a very different way of look. I mean, mm-hmm. well, and I think the problem where a lot of, secularists come from in trying to understand God is by applying human reasoning and human logic to things. You know, they're like, God shouldn't have the right to condemn us for such and such reason because it's it's not right for mankind to do that. Yeah. Without, in, in so doing, they kind of negate the, the fact that because God is God, he mm-hmm. has the sovereign rights to do things that we humans can't do. Now, it's interesting. And I think I find, and this is slightly off the track, but because God's such a different type of being. Yeah. He's creator, he's always existed, and literature at least, writing tends to, gra- tends to gravitate for talking about the human condition, which I think why we don't often have direct God figures. We tend to have people who play representations of what walking the righteous life or the evil life is, because it's very hard to get, especially on the more thoughtful um, 
uh, using my Dostoevsky example, you know. I, I knew he was kind I of know, yeah. He's, because he's always talking, he's always talking about God, but there's, God's not a figure. Uh, but he's talked about, like, especially in Brothers Karazimov, you know, you have Ivan, who's kind of the atheist, who kind of exemplifies where you go if you follow the to a logical conclusion, what, everything's permissible without God. And then you have uh, Father Zosima, who's kind of like the spiritual counterpart, you know, the good spiritual counterpart. Mm-hmm. And you see his whole story and how his life was because of his faith. I mean, I found that tended to be how I want to work, like Squire. Um, there's obviously this sense of providence of God working, but there's nothing direct. It's mm-hmm. not because I'm trying to avoid the issue, it's just because it's hard to talk about it in in fictional terms mm-hmm. directly. Mm-hmm. Because fiction is all about talking about things indirectly. Like, I write, when I write fantasy... And create my worlds, they almost always end up more Old Testament style worlds mm-hmm. because I, I don't see a good way. I find it very difficult to try to basically put Jesus in a, another world. Right. Because to me, well, Jesus is, you know, reality with a big R, and it's hard to then talk about him indirectly. Yeah. Now, Lewis does it really well. Who? Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Oh, C.S. Lewis, yes. Um, but you have to have a very specific type of world, I think. I mean, the almost the world has to be built around. I don't know. I haven't. I find it very difficult to do that yeah. in the way of my writing style. In fan, yeah, and in fantasy, that especially makes a lot of sense. And but this kind of does get into, and and I'd said we might get into this a little bit about how you incorporate your religion yeah. and your faith. It's not just God, but yeah. your your faith in general into your work. And I think you and I, we've always kind of had gone with the understanding. This is derived from Tolkien and Lewis of just telling your story and your faith will naturally influence that. There are other Christian creators that don't work that way. Like the people who do Facing the Giants um, and Fireproof. And, and Courageous. And Courageous, those movies. Uh, Sherwood Baptist, I think, from Georgia. I think that's what they're called. I actually heard this interview. When Courageous was coming out, one of them said in an interview something along the lines of, we consider ourselves preachers first and storytellers second. And when I heard that, I had this wince and a groan. I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I, that, that works against everything the way I, I think as a creator. Yeah. And honestly, most of the, of the film students that I would know at Regent also would have the same reaction. They don't, they're not real fond of that stuff, even though a lot of the evangelical church really loves what they do. Mm-hmm. So, but, and I got into this conversation with, I've talked about this with my mom sometimes, because as a creator, I personally, I don't like making overt messages in my stories, but I, I can't say a hundred percent. I used to say, I don't like it in any stories, but then I, when I was thinking about it, I was like, well, a lot of kids stories, you know, the, the messages are really overt, like adventures and odyssey focused on yeah. the family. I grew up on that and I loved it. And you know, the points of each episode was crystal yeah. clear because it's for kids. Is that necessarily always wrong for an adult? I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I think if you get, again, I, I'm like you said, I'm on the same page as you. I want to tell a good story, mm-hmm. and hopefully through it shines truth, right. shines religion, so, you know. Which, which I think is inevitable. I think that will happen. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think it comes off more natural that way. Now, it might not be so... Sometimes I view it... I used to talk to uh, our friend David Miller, who tends to be a little um, more direct in his sort of writing. And I always said that my writing is kind of like uh, Jesus' parables. You know, he who has ears, ears let him hear, you know. Yeah. Some people hear it, and some people, they're just going to get the... The first level and not the second level the or whatever. Level, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, but I think if the story itself is still honest, I guess, you can get away with having 
more moralistic messages. Yeah. I mean, as long as the story's not being twisted. Right. So, so that the characters don't feel real, that it's not a real sentiment you're just kind of preaching. Yeah, at I, I think honesty plays a lot. Well, it's like, that's the thing with, uh, like, Veggie Tales, which is kind of like Adventure in Odyssey, but, yeah, yeah. you know, video. They're just very natural. The, the jokes are very humorous, you know, they're not, it's not like they're, they don't feel boxed in to have a certain type of, here's things we can't talk about, or we have to be all preachy, I guess, for lack of a better word. Right. So it's, it's a difficult thing, like, I, I've been rereading my Vienna stories. Mm-hmm. Um, Vienna, I think I've probably mentioned on here before, it's just this fictional small town. Um, and those stories almost all tend to, the conflict for most of them, tend to be some sort of religious idea. Yeah. And those probably come off a little more, here's the point of the story. And I don't know if that's good or bad. Sometimes I'm like, I kind of like, oh, I don't know, but I, c- I couldn't write it any other way. It's still, an, it's still what drove me to write the story. Yeah. Well, and the tricky thing is, I think sometimes Christian creators sometimes go a little too far the other direction. They get so terrified of, or get so resistant to, as soon as they see a message like, oh, they're being cheesy, this oh, is yeah. this is being preaching. Because, I mean, honestly, sometimes I, I have wondered that if, are we being too secretive in what we're, we're saying? And I've seen some student films that were like, I have no idea what the point of what you're doing is here, because, yeah, I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, because you want because fiction is very interesting because like uh, I think as Doctor Cosgrove told me, and I, he probably got it from somewhere else, but fiction is the lie that tells the truth. So you're lying, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So there is a sort certain amount of hiding things that go, is, goes on naturally. Uh huh. Um, and you know, the more artistic you get, the more things are implied as opposed to stated. And I think if you're doing it, if you're not stating things directly because of the style, that's better than not stating it because. You don't want to sound, you know, Christian. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now, do you think, you know, because there there tends to be a very large knee-jerk to uh, Christian films Mm -hmm. in secular market. Do you think there's other religions get the same sort of knee-jerk? I mean, or do they not even have have movies? It kind of depends, I think, a lot of times on where the movie is coming from. There's, I have no idea if this actually exists, but if there's a company that makes... Okay, well, let's go with, say, like, uh, the Mormons. Because I know there are some actual Mormon filmmakers, and they make Mormon films. My guess is, I don't know, because I've never actually seen these, but my guess is that they would still kind of come off, you know, kind of stilted. Most people would not pay attention to them. And probably the same thing with with the film that was trying to be specifically Buddhist. Like, they were trying to communicate a Buddhist message. If, however, though, this film is coming from mainstream Hollywood and incorporates Buddhist ideas and kind of its own unique version of it, yeah. then well, and it would I, probably be more accepted. When I was thinking sometimes um, you get kind of extreme environmental. That's true. Which is, depends how you want to read it. Could be religious, although I have almost. Although I have heard secular um, kind of reactions against that. Okay. Against that being too preachy too. Like, like movies like Fern Gully and, and Avatar. Uh, and Avatar didn't bother me as much. Vern Gully, I remember, was insane. And, um, <laughs> what was it? Happy Feet. Oh, I it was never annoying saw that. Because It was a great movie, and then it has this very heavy-handed... And I think it's really the heavy-handed that gets people more than anything. Yeah, and no matter which... No matter what message is coming across, if it's too heavy-handed, then... Yeah, unless, unless it's, uh done by liberal filmmakers and all the and everyone and everyone in hollywood would just absolutely love it because they don't they don't see it being biased because that's their bias I, <laughs> we're not biased um everyone biased but yeah as long as you realize that have you seen um tree of life no i haven't and 
I'd really want to go because it seemed like for a while there were several weeks where like tons of Regent people on Facebook were saying, "Oh my word, I love Tree of Life so much." I mean, I've heard good stuff about it. I've seen heard people say maybe it's a little the reaction a little overblown, but it seems like that would fit right into this discussion. Yeah. So too bad we haven't seen I know. it. <laughs> we didn't do our research. <laughs> Not that much. No. <laughs> Actually, you know, the Best Picture nominees, I, there's most of them I would really like to see. I've unfortunately not seen any of them. Maybe but... we'll have to make a, make a Best Picture series of talking points. Yeah, at some point, when we actually watch them. Yeah, well, yeah I mean, yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm such a bad film student. <laughs> actually, I'm not a film student anymore, so maybe I shouldn't say that. Exactly. You're a wonderful ex-film student. <laughs> so, what, And I think what works with Narnia, you know, going back to Narnia since we're here, mm-hmm. is that there's plenty of people who read it. And never realize the symbolism. Yeah. Although there are also people who would now, since this is America and it's a Christian country. And so there's a lot of people who don't. Okay, it's not necessarily a Christian country anymore, but there's some, there's a lot of understanding of the Christian ideas. But what I think is that that shows that if your art's good, you can get away with talking about whatever you want. Yeah. I remember a story, and I don't think I've said it on the podcast yet, uh, Lord of the Rings. Christians read it, see all kinds of very true how the world works, mm-hmm. as we believe from a biblical point of view. I remember one of the students at Taylor had grown up in a Druid religion from Britain or somewhere, England somewhere. And first time she read it, that's what she saw in it. But then later on, when she became Christian, was studying it with Dr. Jordan, uh-huh. her entire view of everything had been changed. Interesting. Because there's so much Norse you know, stuff going right, on in that. Right, right. Now, and the interesting thing is some Christians would say, well, then his, how is his message, how is Christian doctrine actually communicated then if it's so obscure that people won't understand it? And I'd be like, well, if, I think if you study a work well enough and are considering, you know, the authors, I mean, it doesn't take much research to find out that Tolkien was a Catholic. Yeah. So then I would still maintain that there is the seed for finding out more. Well, and I and I do think also you can't, take into consideration how everyone might interpret it because there's all kinds of you know literary theories going on like they'll, they'll analyze pride and prejudice in socialist theory yeah i mean you can read on your point of view if you have an agenda you can read it into anything about anything no that's so true. not only do you have to be as a writer honest to come off as a reader you should probably be honest too with what is it actually saying and there is a reader response maybe he's saying this but this is what you got out of it mm-hmm. i mean but here's my thing if the Bible can be misinterpreted by enough pe- by so many different types of people, and God had a hand in writing that, yeah. I think if you write it and people misinterpret it, you can't be held accountable as long as you, in your best faith, wrote things. Yeah, if you gave it your best, then you were... Yeah, yeah you were on it. You know, you said, this is what I believe. I'm writing it to the best of my ability. I'm not trying to hide or twist it or, you know. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, getting back to this whole God part yeah. of it because yeah because i knew we we, we couldn't not talk yeah. about no and that's i'm glad we went that way but um who would you say besides if we're not looking in terms of an actual god depiction like not aslan not morgan freeman yeah um who would you say uh exemplifies like you can see the the image of god you know like you know mankind is made in the image of god who might be a character in a story that that you feel you know really encapsulates that I can think of one example off the top of my head. Hey, let me hear your example so I have a little time to think. Um, 
Uncle Iroh from Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh, okay. And his arc, by the end, with his nephew, Prince Zuko, is very much a prodigal son, prodigal, prodigal yeah. son kind of situation. I like that. Forgiveness, patience, understanding, and he, but he's also a warrior. So that's a show that has much more Eastern influences than Christian, but I think you can make a case for him being a very godlike, fatherly kind of figure. I guess not so much godlike, but I know I mentioned in here before that I always thought George Bailey was a very suffering servant sort of represent that that side of yeah Christ. No, I can see that. Um, obviously, he has a little more despair than. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Jesus had his moments of being like, oh, "Why oh, am I even doing this?" You the know, Garden of Gethsemane, exactly, yeah. which I've always really enjoyed personally. So that 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 one always kind of comes up. Um, I don't know. I suppose you could say Jakar, kind of. Um, from Babylon Five. Babylon Five. I don't. I wouldn't push it. It's more of a secularized version of. That, yeah, that's of he's like more the prophet. of a prophet. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure about that one. Counts. I'm trying. I'm trying to read through all my different. Oh, aha! Randall Thor from Wheel of Time. Okay. He has all. I mean, in Wheel of Time, purposely kind of used all kinds of mythology sort of stuff. But he has he has a crown of swords okay. like thorns, and uh-huh. he has this injury on his side that won't heal, mm. and he's supposed to die to save the world. Very Christ-like. Yeah. He's also married to three people and stuff like that, which is a little <laughs> different, but... Yeah, well... But, but, you know, there are a lot of stories, the... Uh, and King Arthur. Yeah, I was going to say, the whole the whole idea of the Chosen One, which shows up in all kinds of fantasy, mm-hmm. is uh, very reminiscent of Well, Christ. yeah, there's a lot of... There's a lot of derivative... Yeah, well, <laughs> Anakin is derivative. Oh, yeah, that's true. That whole true. virgin birth thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, George, I think we know where you got that idea from. But no, and well, in the virgin, well, I don't know if the virgin birth comes in. I'll, there's weird births in all kinds of mythology. Mm, I suppose that's true. I know, and he says Joseph Campbell and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, yeah, like Wonder Woman was like shaped out of clay and then breathed into life. She, he, she wasn't actually conceived. I guess a lot of heroes in general tend to try to encapsulate a sense of yeah. Christ because you know you would say it's not a Christian country anymore. It's not really, but the Christian idea, even if not the belief, has formed. Massive amounts of culture. Yeah, that yeah, that is very and true. still does. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's still kind of the one of the paragons of what a hero is. Mm-hmm. Well, like you said earlier, Superman. Superman. Who, this I thought Spider Man in Spider Man Two. I thought that was very um, there was religious kinda, yeah, symbolism the, going on. There was like when they were like uh, carrying him through the subway. Yeah, it was very yeah. Well, the subway train. Train. Yeah, the, car. the L wasn't mm-hmm. an elevated train. Yeah, I suppose it was. Yeah. It seems like I cannot remember what it was, and I have this less vague imagery of this science fiction movie somewhere. Well, at the end, he was almost like this second coming of Christ thing going on. Mm. Um, we have anti, and then we got anti god people in like anime, like uh, mm-hmm. you know, well, Gendo, Gendo and Kari. You know, it's like yeah. I'm going to kill God, yeah, um, or angels or whatever. And Xenogears, if you play that game, the main character in that one wants to kill his. Mission is to kill God. Really? Yeah. He tells you straight up in like hour three that he's going to kill God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Death Note, which I talked about on here earlier, Light Yagami is definitely seeking to become a god in a sense. And there's some there's some pictures and like credits and then various moments where he's very much in kind of a Christ-like pose and stuff where they really play up the whole um, having power over death and mm-hmm. element. So, so, I mean, the influence of... And we've been talking mainly about God as in Christian God, mm-hmm. um, but it has influ- it has it has echoes everywhere, really. Yeah. Especially in especially in the comic book era and the sci fi and the you know places where they don't 
Yeah. They don't have, you know, once they mo- remove the god, they push someone else into the spot. You, you know, one of the most interesting ones of, I guess you could say this is where, not where God makes a physical appearance, but actually his uh, presence makes a very definite appearance. Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's true. Very interesting depiction of, uh, I mean, I guess you could you could say in a sense it's it's making the Ark of the Covenant akin to like... An Hindu, idol of some sort. Yeah, Hindu voodoo or what have you. But still, I mean, pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah. That is, that's true. I mean, you don't ever think about Indiana Jones, but that's, you know, the whole entire end is basically Deus Ex Machina. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually a good point. <laughs> that works somehow. Yeah, somehow. I mean, you could sort of say that about... I wonder if that's one reason why some people... I mean, a lot of people don't like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull because it's aliens and stuff like that. But it, it did kind of miss, you do kind of miss that uh, that deserts, the Middle East kind of feel of having actual God there. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think every time they try to replace God with aliens, I personally am way turned off. I think that's just a cheesy way of doing things. Um, yeah. The knowing. Uh, the knowing. Oh, the... <laughs> uh, or just, is it just knowing? No, it's just, no I think it's, it's oh, just Oh, that knowing. movie, I don't know. If you watch that movie, I'm sorry. But... <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, but that's an, like we... Like we've said, that's in a lot of science fiction. That is a lot of science fiction. And it's overdone, yeah. really. Well, oh, man, the first season of Stargate SG-1, which I'm watching right now, for, like, the first several episodes is, is like, going to say, no, this is not God. This guy is not God. This is just some really <laughs> smart guy. And we're more modern scientists, so we know way much more than you primitive people. And it gets it got kind of old. What's interesting, Stargate Universe, and before it got canceled, their whole purpose was to go out, and they had found this basically this message in the subparticles, but basically saying whatever had caused this message was what created the universe. And they didn't, you know, there was kind of a small argument whether it was God or just some force or whatever. But mm. so, I mean, it's always the the first question, not Doctor Who, but the <laughs> other first question yeah. is in speculative fiction, you know, people who ask big questions, they have to wrestle with that one way or another. Mm-hmm. And they come up with all kinds of answers. Yeah. Yeah, and if if our expertise was farther beyond expected the fiction, I'd try to bring in some more examples of people searching for God in, in dramas and stuff. But like waiting for Godot, I suppose that's true. Which is interesting. I mean, that's kind of a whole you know absurdist parable of waiting for God, They're waiting for Godot, and they just kind of yeah, is there... it mocks faith, not mocks it, but well, is useless. Mm-hmm. You know, isn't it? It's an interesting, funny play, but also depressing. Is there much room for God? This is this might be a complete side note. Yeah. But is there much room for God in Brazil? Um, in the movie, you mean? Yeah, the movie. Uh, not the not <laughs> in the country. Well, I'm sure there is in the country, um, and not the movie. I don't know that there actually was ever that wrestled with in Brazil. Okay. It's more of the freedom of creativity versus the kind of deadening of this sort of uh, office culture. It's it's hard to explain without seeing it. Okay. But you have things like uh oh I didn't even think of this um stranger than fiction, you, I mean I mean the the she, storyteller is sort of a god yeah, figure yeah and she and he's kind of a Christ you know sacrificing themselves purposely I mean that's true they play with that sort of uh-huh. thing but yeah post apocalyptic stories it's interesting because I don't know I think a lot of them are very 
they can be very nihilistic. Mm -hmm. Now, Book of Eli is a notable exception. That's true. That's an interesting... Which is a very interesting film, and I don't know that there's necessarily a Christ figure. The main character himself, Eli, I think, is much more of a prophet than a mm -hmm. Christ-like figure. We got the Eli thing going on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's an interesting way of looking at... I don't know. Would God allow... I mean, it's just... It's a... It's a imaginary sort of situation but would god allow half you know the majority of the earth's population to be decimated and let it build up i, I don't really see that reflected in the bible but it's can't rule anything I, out i should add did you ever read the left behind series no i never did. okay I, I can't comment then either i was just curious because that would be an interesting commentary on this yeah i think i feel like that's one that that is much more on the side of overt messaging. Well, it is, and but I, I but, wonder. A lot of people seem to really buy into it, though. Yeah. Well, and I know, I know at least one person from TUFW who said that his parents basically got saved because of that series. So you know, more power to him. Yeah, I guess. And I guess I should mention, from an artistic point of view, it might be a bad book, but good evangelism. Yeah. The problem, though, is that what can be good evangelism for one person may be bad art to another non-believer. Yeah. Just bad art. Not, yeah. not, not very effective in evangelizing. Yeah. And I really don't think, I don't know how well you can do direct evangelism and good art. Yeah. Because the one yeah. saying truth directly and the other one's mm -hmm. hiding truth. It's a tricky thing, and I think a lot of it really depends on your audience. I mean, and the problem I always had with Left Behind, or really any end-time sort of thing, is that a lot of it is the it's the scaring you into the, salvation method, which always kind of rubbed me the wrong way, yeah. and some people it rubs the wrong way. Other people it's effective for us, so to, I don't know. To me, if I'm trying to evangelize, I'm going to do a nonfiction book. Mm -hmm. Because there's no reason to put you know hide it. If you're going, to, if that's your purpose, yeah, yeah, that's that's my thing. I mean, I think it's, I think there's certainly value in, and we're we're kind of repeating ourselves, <laughs> know, but, but <laughs> there's certainly value in showing people glimpses of God in your fiction and um, and of beauty and of truth and so forth. But it's it's more of a it's more of planting and, and watering a seed than necessarily or expanding horizons they already have. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. So, again, we don't necessarily have a conclusion as usual. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've decided that our purpose is to get you thinking and not to give you answers. Exactly, yeah. Which is what fiction's about. Yeah, and, <laughs> and sometimes questions can tell us more than answers ever will. That's, that's, that's very zen there. <laughs> well, it's also very much a lyric from Michael Card, so thank you to Michael Card for that. Could it be you make your presence known so often by your absence? Could it be? Questions tell us more than answers ever do. Could it be that you would really rather die than live without us? Could it be the only answer that means anything is you? All right, so uh, we better wrap this up before we ramble some more. Yeah. <laughs> that was Story School, and now we'll do our first soundtrack. soundtrack choice for today this is actually from the same album that nick used a while back when we did our moral universe episode i think from uh, i think it was the magic actually for turkish delight oh was it magic i think so okay i can't remember which one it was 
Um, anyway, this is from the music inspired by the Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe movie. Um, this... We're here. Yes, yes, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, this song is by Reliant K. It is called In Like a Lion, in parentheses, Always Winter. And it is it kind of captures the whole idea from the first book of always winter, never Christmas, um, you know, when you're in a very dry spot in life. And I think it really captures the mood really well. Um, and I actually used this song once to make an anime music video, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes because awesome. it turned out fairly well. But because of copyright, I can't play the whole thing. So much like when we have Nick's, um, Nick's song from that album, we'll bring you in for the second verse of the song. So enjoy. It'd be so nice to look out the window And see the leaves on the trees begin to show The birds would congregate and sing A song of birth, a song of newer things The wind would calm and the sun would shine I'd go outside and When it's always winter But never Christmas Sometimes it feels like You're not with us But deep inside our hearts We know that you are here And we will not lose For those who remember. I guess you need to talk to the man. For those who will never forget. Posso emprestar as tuas tarefas de bio? And for a whole new generation that will experience it for the very first time. Will there ever be a happy ending to this madness? What are you doing? I'm creating suspense. Announcing the premiere of the 10th anniversary edition of The Taylor Trilogy, the romantic comedy series of love and relationships at Taylor University, Fort Wayne. Featuring newly restored footage, unearthed and recut especially for this DVD release. Together with new commentaries from the cast and crew, deleted scenes, rarely seen outtakes, brand new trailers, and more. 
The 10th Anniversary Edition is the new definitive version of this beloved amateur romantic comedy classic. Don't miss the chance to own this piece of TUFW history. Can you believe he pays me to do this? Available now from derailed trains of thought. Visit our website for more information. All right. That was uh, an awesome sponsor, Tim. Yes, uh, we were sponsoring ourselves. Um, Tim's put a lot of work into uh, the platinum edition of uh, the Taylor Trilogy. <laughs> yes, which let's go ahead and talk about that in our next segment. Okay, which is Project Update. So, yes, we've been putting a lot of work into the Taylor Trilogy. <laughs> hours DVD. and hours. Well, it's kind of one of those things that, well, we had the idea to make a commentary for a long time ago, and we actually recorded it. A long time ago. <laughs> it was like back in August, wasn't it? Was it that long ago? I was thinking it was later in fall, but maybe it wasn't. August or September. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I just got distracted with teaching a class, and then I had no life. Life. You know, I had a project for Texas Roadhouse in, um, in Fort Wayne, making a line dance video for their contest. Um, but anywho, finally got, it's like, knuckled down. It's like, okay, I'm going to finally get everything done for this disc that i wanted so and it was again one of those things that once we had ideas they just kind of became bigger and yeah. bigger and <laughs> rather monstrous with, with another another six months we could do even more <laughs> <laughs> except actually the dvd is quite full at this point so but it, it's a great value especially if you know if you're familiar with it you, there'll be a lot of a lot of really special goodies on it yeah but we have three com commentaries for each of the three movies mm -hmm. we have bloopers some of them that haven't been seen for ages yeah well the outtakes for dtr dtr has lots of new stuff because we actually went back to the original source tapes and the ones we could find the ones that we could find <laughs> unfortunately there was one that's missing so <laughs> did you actually watch dtr when you were yeah there? i did so yeah, yeah it's very oh how pretty oh what happened to the tape? <laughs> yeah. But the first half is like all really nice pristine quality, and the second half is like, ugh. But <laughs> like you got comparison. rid of all the pauses, didn't you? The yes. Flex? Which yeah. is nice. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, you edited that movie back in 2003. So I, I can't imagine, I mean, how much the video, the DV video was downgraded because of your computer system. Oh, probably. Yeah. I was still learning how to edit. I mean, the first one I was completely like, I'd never done much editing. Yeah. Second one knew more. Then got Final Cut for the third one. Yeah, which was awesome. This is nice. Yeah, Final Cut was. After that, I'm like, I'm never doing on anything but Final Cut. Ah, <laughs> oh, good times. It was. So it's quite entertaining. If you haven't seen it, it's worth. Why not? Yeah, come get it. And it's still going to be on YouTube. It's not as good a quality as what you'd get on the DVD. And, and you'll get all the bonus features. You won't get all the bonus features. Or the commentary. Yeah, but if you'd like to at least kind of take a peek at it, it's. I think we we still have a link for it on the website, and we'll have. We've got information for it for the DVD itself on the website too, and we'll remind you where that is at the end of the show. Sounds good. Yes. So how is uh that's that's my big update. What's uh, how's Strin and Fred going? Strin and Fred's coming along. The last two weeks have not been very good for, it, but generally I'm getting like a chapter done a week. Actually, I guess we should be calling it the Eternal Night Saga. I still call it Strin and Fred, but I'm trying to give it a cool name that actually makes sense in context. Mm -hmm. You know, for for on the book, the Eternal Night Saga, which just sounds awesome. <laughs> but I say Strand Fred. It's coming along pretty well, though this is going to be such a long book. I know I say that every time. <laughs> but So I've written a good number of chapters since the beginning of the year, because the beginning of the year is really where I started pushing it. And I have, I don't know, written six chapters or so, maybe more than that. I thought, I was averaging about one a week. Mm -hmm. And it's all about right now Fred, who's, if you haven't read the book, kind of the, the younger hero who's kind of 
hot-headed and the naive loudmouth. Yeah, who's not quite as naive as he used to be. Uh-huh. Which is which is kind of the plot line here is trying to make him grow up, which he did a lot of actually in the last book. But mm-hmm. this is kind of make him stand on his own two feet because he his master's not there anymore. And then playing with this sort of half love triangle I have going, and then making sure that not everyone dies because everyone's <laughs> sick and. Now, do, they, do they actually get somewhere in this book? Because in book two, they were like on this long caravan the entire time, and it was just a lot of travel. I mean, not... no, it is. <laughs> it is a lot. No, the book two is all internal conflict. It's a very different beast from the first. First one's like things happening every chapter and fights, and, and then book two is like, and we sit here for a while and wonder what we should do, and then we walk for a long time, <laughs> and then we get somewhere. I mean, it works for what you're doing. It's just you can't do different. it for two books. Yeah, it's yeah. very, it's very different. Yeah. Um, no, this one, they spent, I spent a couple chapters with Fred getting them through the link, through the, and then they end up in, by the Jabaki, which is this river. It's like, basically Brazil. Um, <laughs> but it's like Amazonish sort of territory, and, okay. and then they end up right next to where uh, Keck's old girlfriend is, like, a princess. Oh, there. interesting. So there's kind of, you know, because Keck's this, like, superhero sort of, you know, very buff, macho, Schwarzenegger sort of. Uh-huh. Um, night kind of. night guy and his wife who's also a kind of a who became more and more bitter as more the second book went on so this is kind of going to be like, you know like the straw on the camel's back yeah um, so we got that going on and we got Webby and we're trying to find this water that's supposed to heal him so there's a lot of stuff moving and then we have the bandits who are kind of like slowly making the horizon morals disintegrate mm. now okay Correct me if I'm wrong on this. Now, isn't the horizon kind of a Midwest sort of setting? Yeah. Like very rural. It's very pastures. rural, very Midwest, yeah. And then they go to Brazil. They go to, yeah. Huh. I write, write what you know. <laughs> in case you don't know people, <laughs> Nick grew up in Midwest, married a woman who grew up in Brazil. Yep. Not naturally Brazil. She was a missionary kid. Yeah. But still. But uh, write what you know. And actually, I'd always kind of had this envision from, from probably actually halfway through book one that that's where they would end up going okay um or at least by the first third of book two i don't remember where exactly all the details fell into place but it's a nice you know so it's they're playing fish out of water because they've got all these horizon people so they're fish out of water they're all kind of desperate because they don't find this cure they're all going to die and then you got the bandits who are all smiley and like slowly taking over the leadership of the group and because the elders are they're just lost they're old men they don't know what they're doing they can't they can't react to change and fred's like pounding his head against everything so there's a lot of stuff going on cool so what are the chances that because you've kind of split it into three into thirds is what are the chances that this third will be done by the end of the year oh yes definitely my hope is to get both the thirds done by the end of the year oh i had the whole book then yeah now again who knows but i'm going i'm going at a decent pace i would say i'm halfway through the Fred part, really? Well, because I had I had some stuff already written. Oh, that's true. Okay. Um, so it's going decently well. It's going decently well. I think this third is going to be bigger than my previous third, though, which was like fifty thousand <laughs> words. So I could be wrong. I I could guess wrong, but there's just so much stuff going on. Cool. So well, listeners can be looking forward to that, and, and they can be reading about if they've never read Strand Fred, they can catch up with some of the first chapters on uh, my website, worksofnick.com. And I'm kind of, for the people who have seen it already, I'm trying to put little annotated notes, mm-hmm. kind of behind the scenes, which you don't have to read, but people like Tim, who you know might they've already read it, and they're you know they're like this is old news. Um, they can kind of get little insights 
uh, I would like um, my goal is to post it twice a week, but sometimes I don't get it done. Yeah, I try to get it once a week. And your insights are fairly—they're not really spoilerish. They're not normally. Sometimes they say like this shows up later. Or sometimes okay. it, yeah, but they're not real spoilerish. I mean, you could say it alludes to, but it's not like you say, "Oh, and this character, and, and the later day, this character will die." <laughs> and it's kind of—it's kind of fun. I thought it's a, a nice little extra for people. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't think I have anything else going on actually. Well, that's funny right there. I know. I have a couple flash books I wrote this week just because I had it in my head for a long time, and I wrote them both in one night. Really? Yeah. Impressive. Finally, we'll finish off with our take on Tales. So, um, Tim, do you want to start or shall I? I guess I'll, I guess okay. I'll start. Go for um, it. So the other day I was at the library and had some time to kill and picked up this book. <laughs> picked up a comic book because I've been in the mood for a comic book. I tend to get in these moods where I really want to read some comic books. Then I'll like go through half a dozen and then I'm like, okay, that'd be enough for a few months. But in this case, I picked up a book called Whatever Happens to the Man of Tomorrow. Is it uh, Superman related? It, it is Superman. Okay. And it's written by Alan Moore. Now, ah. <laughs> now, I had heard about this story for a long time, and I was, I was always a little leery of it, because the only... Alan Moore. Yeah. <laughs> Who's actually an insanely talented guy. But... No, definitely. But the, the, but the only Alan Moore I had read before the hand was Watchmen, which is very dense, very dark graphic novel. I mean... Graphic and novel. Yes, very graphic, very novel. I mean, the climax has something to do with... Um, benevolent act of mass terrorism yeah which makes sense in context <laughs> yes it really does um but it is probably one of the best graphic novels written it's hard difficult to like in some ways but impossible not to admire yeah it is it is insanely well done so the only the only alan moore i'd read was that and the killing joke which is a batman story that's about the joker being insane and trying to make Commissioner Gordon go insane by showing him pictures of his daughter, a.k.a. Batgirl, getting shot, paralyzed, and I think sexually abused. That is really uplifting. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Alan Moore. Yeah. So he has a reputation for these for the Stark stuff, so I was a little afraid of what he might do as Superman. Um, actually, another side note. <laughs> had this great conversation with one of our faithful listeners, Greg, the other day about... Hello, Greg. Hey, Greg. Um about comics and we both kind of agree that as much as people like alan moore and frank miller probably saved the comic book industry in the 80s they also introduced a lot of the factors that we don't particularly like about the medium now <laughs> all the grim and gritty and sometimes nihilistic stuff mm -hmm. but anyway so again i had a, i was very worried about this book especially since this story is basically telling a final chapter for superman it was written just around the time of the Crisis on Infinite Earths, which ended the previous DC Comics continuity and was going to start it over. And so they said, well, since we're going to start our you know, Superman magazines over again, you know, starting back at number one, how will we finish this out? And they're like, well, let's, why don't we tell a story as if you know, it's the end of Superman's career, basically. Yeah. Which had the potential to be interesting, but to be true to Superman... I wanted it to also be inspirational, mm -hmm. to be uplifting. And thankfully, that's what this was. Really? Oh, nice. Yes. No, it's a it's a very fitting tribute to the end of the Silver Age Superman, Silver Age slash Bronze Age. I mean, there are characters who die, both well, both gonna, good and bad. Well, if it's going to be the end of a story, you're going to have some death. Yeah, it has to be. It has to be epic, know, and, epic and big and stuff. Have a sense of finality to um, it. 
And, you know, through the whole read, I was still kind of, you know, because Superman's my, he's my first superhero, <laughs> so I'm very protective of him. I want to see him go out right. And for the most part, I didn't really have a qualm. There's, the only thing I really had a, kind of a qualm with is I didn't really like the way Clark Kent's identity was revealed to the world. Uh, kind of lame, in my opinion. But that's also kind of a pet peeve. No, was this a graphic novel or a series of um, it was actually, comics that got put together? It was a series of comics, okay. that, but it was really only a two-part series. Oh, okay. So it was not like one of the more massive kinds of stories. It was it was very contained, but uh, the very kind of the basic thing was just a series of events. In some ways, not unlike Hush, in that you've got a number of Superman's villains that are working against him in a, unusual and more effective ways than before and being kind of manipulated by someone. Um, Hush kind of played with that same idea. They may have gotten some inspiration for that, um, but that was a 12-part series where this is a two-part, <laughs> yeah. so much more self-contained. But yeah, overall, very faithful to the Superman character, I would say, and like I said, also, at the same time, also very inspirational, or, you know. So you would recommend it? I would recommend it. And the hardcover book that it comes in now also has two other Superman Alan Moore stories in it. Um, or Superman stories written by Alan Moore. Alan Moore doesn't make an appearance in it. <laughs> um, and, Not many comic creators appear in their own comics anymore. Except for Stanley. Stanley. Yeah. But he can get away with that. <laughs> but um, and they're, they're decent. Oddly enough, they both involve Superman getting infected by an alien parasitic life form that gives him the hallucinations. Both of them? Both of them. Well, one of them is the Jungle Lion, and it's a crossover with Swamp Thing, who okay. Alan Moore did a lot of writing for. Oh, yeah, I knew that, yeah. Yeah, that one was... It was okay. The other one is called For the Man Who Has Everything, and that one I actually like quite a bit. It, it was actually adapted into an episode of Justice League Unlimited at oh, one point. cool. And it, it's pretty cool because it, it involves... Wonder Woman, Batman, and Robin coming to the Fortress of Solitude for Superman's birthday, and they find him with this plant growing out of him. But, <laughs> Only in comic books. Yeah. But in, in this case, it's it's a parasitic plant that gives its victim hallucinations of their heart's desire. Oh, So Superman thinks that he's on Krypton, which hasn't exploded and stuff. Okay. Oh, interesting. So it's a very interesting story. It's, it's a great mix of character study and action, which I mean, you can't ask for much no, more in a comic. No, that's about perfect. And that's a story that probably talks more about his uh, Kryptonian heritage. Like, I've always kind of felt like Superman probably identified as much with his human side as with his Kryptonian side, because that's where he grew up. You're an Earther. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there's certainly room in his character to explore both yeah. sides of his personality, and that one explores the Kryptonian. Interesting. So, yeah, overall good stuff. Good. I would like to read that, because I haven't read, I actually have read very little Superman except what you've handed me. Yeah. So, well, I'll talk, I have two, well, depending on how long my first one goes, I might not do my second. Um, my first one's an anime I watched recently called the, and I should have watched it before our romance episode actually. Oh yeah. But called the Girl Who Leapt Through Time, which, which is a really cool movie. Which is a great movie. It's a very interesting combination of high school drama and sci-fi. <laughs> um, and it's basically about this uh, teenage, only in anime. <laughs> only in anime. About this girl who accidentally gets this power to basically leap through time. Basically, she can jump backwards and relive certain things, and then jump back into present. I think believe. I think so. Yeah. The, the the time travel mechanics are a little crazy. Vague. Vague. But yeah. you don't, I mean, they're play. you don't care. Yeah. Because they play it so much, they play it so well. Like, there's this one time where she goes, she's doing karaoke with her friends because that's, you know, what Japanese do. <laughs> and she, the hour's almost up, so she wants to do it again. So she, she jumps back 
and does it another hour. And I think she ends up saying she's like she sang karaoke for eight hours, the same <laughs> hour eight times, uh-huh. and no one else know. You know, so and then there's also this love story about whether. Well, I don't go too much away. The only and it's a beautiful. I mean, beautifully well done. The story's compelling. Um, the girl's funny. Her right. the way she lands from her her time jumps is absolutely genius. <laughs> I knew that would crack you up. Uh, that was, it, it's, I mean, if you've never watched anime, it wouldn't be a bad one to start with. I don't think. No, not really. I mean, if, if you're one of those who are like they're too weird, they have all kinds of bizarre stuff going on. Well, yeah, like the the very first time she time travels, it comes out of nowhere practically. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very like. They throw the time travel, and then it melds really, really well. Yeah, no, it really And it does. talks about, you know, are there consequences to changing things, you know? Mm-hmm. The only problem is the end is overly vague, I think. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, two things, because first off, I don't know how much I can say without spoiling it, but there's basically two pieces of information that you would really like to know that they don't give you, and if they had only left one of them vague, mm-hmm. I don't think it would mind as much, but they leave both vague. First off, like this sort of, the love relationship is kind of put on hold, and you you're given this idea that it's going to get back together, but logically, there's no real way for it to happen. Yeah, well, just, it, just think time travel and stuff like that. Well, it sort of implies. I don't think this is giving too. Okay, too yeah, much let away. me. Yeah, I wasn't. Sure. I've wrestled with various things, but yeah, it kind of seems to imply that there's a massive like in between. Oh, there's like a like a post-apocalyptic event. Yeah. Or apocalyptic there's event. A, there's apparently some massive change to the Earth in between, like, the girl's present and her future. Yeah. Like, I mean, if... if like a massive deal. I'm, yeah. Which is kind of bizarre to just kind of leave hanging for what is otherwise, you know, a very lighthearted... Yeah, you know. So, so you have that, the, like, this sense of doom, if you play it logically. The uh-huh. fa- sense that the, the guy and the girl don't really get together, but they're like, oh, but we'll meet each other. And you're like... But how? <laughs> and then there's this painting that is apparently insanely important to one of our main characters. Mm-hmm. You kind of get a sense why, but you feel like there's there's more to the story. Mm, yeah, possibly. I don't. They've just put so much emphasis on that painting. That seems to be a very Japanese and storytelling what, device. There's there's they like leaving a lot of stuff off screen. Like, and I don't mind that necessarily. I just felt like there was almost just one too many things off screen mm, at the end. Yeah. For for me to be to be satisfied, I I I recommend the movie to anyone, mm-hmm. but it was a little, especially if, if you look at it logically, if you look at it strictly emotionally, you can probably feel more satisfied. Yeah, apparently, it's actually a kind of a sequel to a live action movie. Really? Yeah. I did that, not the, know that. that the aunt that she talks to uh-huh. was the character in this in the previous movie. Really? And that's why they're always talking about her. She says she used to jump through time and oh, stuff like that. Oh, I did not know that. And that movie is based on a book. Wait, based off a book? So adapted from or yeah. spin off? I think adapted. I think I think the original live action movie is adapted from a book. Okay. And then this is a kind of a half sequel. <laughs> It'd be really interesting if there is a sequel of like this live action movie is a sequel to this book, which is <laughs> and apparently apparently that live action movie is being remade or has been remade. I apparently there's like four four or five different versions of this story in Japan, huh? Or or variations of this story. Uh huh. Yeah, I was looking on Wikipedia, trying to figure out if just, the ant was one of those things. You felt like they linger on some of her like pictures and stuff, kind mm-hmm. of overlong. That and makes a lot of sense. I didn't know that. It's interesting though that that's the only one that kind of migrated over here. I mean, like not the live yeah, action, just and the I anime. Guess, I guess it was kind of limited release to Japan and just went off really well. I think it just hit off really well in Japan mm-hmm. because it is just a, it's a beautiful movie mm-hmm. and it just it's just paced really well generally. 
It almost feels like a Studio Ghibli film, but it isn't. So. Yeah, it does feel that sort of quality. Mm-hmm. Which, speaking of which, I need to go watch the... I know, I need to, too. I was I was wondering if you remember that that was out. Well, what's it called? Um, uh, Tales, no. Of Ariarty. Ariarty. The Secret. It's basically the borrowers. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, The Secrets of Ariarty. Yeah, tale, I'm thinking Tales from Mercy. I read somewhere that uh, Miyazaki's supposed to have a new film next year. Oh, really? Directed by him? Directed by him. Okay, because I heard he this wrote one, the story. Yeah, he, he co-wrote? Co-wrote, this I think. One. Yeah. Yeah, we need to get out there and see that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So those were two pretty interesting. So go either read the Alan Moore story or watch the anime. It's yeah. uh, it's on Netflix. That's where I got it from. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's worth the hour and a half. It and whatever happens to the Man of Tomorrow is probably pretty accessible because libraries who collect graphic novels know Alan Moore is big and obviously Superman is big. So it, it's out there. You should be able to find it. It's I think it was. The hardcover I read was published in 2009. Oh, so it's brand new, too. Yeah. I mean, relatively for... Relatively, yeah. All right. Well, let's finish up with some contact info. Okay. You can visit us at our website, zerotrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Um, we should have a link there for the Taylor Trilogy, huh? if you're interested in getting a copy of it. By the time this episode comes out. You can email us at derailedtrains at gmail.com. And um, you can follow us on Twitter, I guess. That's true. <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, I'm Nick underscore Hayden. Storyteller Frog, all one word. You know, if you follow us, say hi, say we love your podcast, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. So let us know you're out there and leave a comment. We'd love comments, even if it's just like, "Hey, I listened to it." You know, that's nice. Oh yeah. Or <laughs> or if you want to tell me that Alan Moore is absolutely the best thing that ever happened to comic books, and you should be ashamed forever. Okay, you can you can tell us that too. Yeah, we don't mind disagreement. Yeah, <laughs> we'll just blacklist you. But. Uh, <laughs> all right i guess i'll end up with my soundtrack go for it mine's a little longer it's like oh it's pushing six minutes so we're putting it at the end here but it's uh, called pillar of salt by star salesman it's re- a mix remix of song of from xenogears which is very a religiously oriented okay. video game which i don't think i've heard listen to this yet you've heard it before okay i think but anyways what's why i picked it besides it's like completely awesome and one of the best things on overclock remix is that inside of it they use the like Hebrew and Arabic lyrics for um, the story of um, Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt oh. and, and, one, and one of the Psalms. Sometimes I listen to it and think I would love to do some sort of music video of like Abraham sacrificing his son or some sort of biblical story to it because it just has this ridiculously epic biblical quality to it. Cool. So I hope you enjoy it. Is this the one that's on from that one remix CD? It's like all it's all in Arabic, like the yeah. I think you probably heard it. Yeah. Okay. So I I think you'll enjoy it. It's uh, different than I think anything else we put up so far. Most likely, <laughs> uh, which is always fun to do. Yeah. And it's just it's just ridiculously awesome. All right. So this has been uh, Nick, and this is Tim, and we're gonna spend about uh, fifty more years here, and then we'll come back to uh, Earth. Yeah, it, it, we should be back at Earth in about an hour, I think. Yeah, that would be good. Yep. So, all right, farther up and further in. Adios. Bye-bye.
that's wrong. It, it's nothing really. It's silly. Is it homework related? No, 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 no. Please don't touch me. Then it's a girl. No, it's not. Okay, maybe it is.